We are continuing our study in Philippians. Uh, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11. Uh, I've been talking with a few folks in the church, and I've mentioned, I've said, this is kind of like a trap, a trapped text. That's what my old pastor used to call these types of texts. And what he meant was these big texts uh, that are so central to our faith. They, they, they inform us greatly. They are sort of like pillars, and they're throughout. Uh, the Bible. We have different ones like this, but this is one of those that is like a pillar uh, in our faith, describing for us the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to it, and it's a trap text because I think ministers don't like to just rehearse the same old thing. They like to be get, get a little novel here and there and kind of shake things up and uh, you can fall into a trap and, and not preach the text, not preach the heart of the text. Um, but what I want us to see today is Jesus. That's what we see throughout this text is Jesus. I want him to, to shine forth as we look at this. You'll remember that this text flows out of um, verses 1 to 4 that we looked at last week. You'll remember that the, the exhortation there was, "...in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Um, and which was also a follow-up to Paul saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this, you might say this text gets at that idea that Christ is all in all. It is, it is everything flowing that we've already read flowing up to this, this moment in the, in the little letter to the Philippians. And then out of it will, will come out of it. It'll look backwards to this uh, picture of Jesus. And so it stands at the apex, if you will, of the letter to Philippians from which everything flows into and comes out of. So with that, this is such a big test. Let's turn to, in God's word, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. You can follow along in your bulletins or on the screen. Hear God's word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help me to proclaim faithfully the glories of Christ that we would worship him. Uh, Lord, help all of our hearts rejoice in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. So just at, at the outset, I, I named the title of this sermon, A Hymn to Jesus. And many scholars think that this is possibly, and I use that language possibly, an early hymn to the, uh, to, of Jesus by the church. Maybe Paul wrote it. Maybe Paul used it. Um, some scholars think it's probably not a hymn, but it has poetic quality. It's high poetic prose, if you will. Um, it is 
Paul exulting. Uh, I don't know if you're a writer or a poet. You, you, you know as you get, get warmed up to, to the writing process, all of a sudden, the things that you care about most sort of come out. And, and um, that's kind of what we have here, some scholars say. So it's a hymn to Jesus. If it is an old hymn or if it isn't. But in this hymn-like writing, there is a declaration at the end that says, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is one of, if not the oldest, confession. You know how in our... In our um, order of service, we have a confession of faith. We rotate them, and hopefully we'll be soon rotating in a few more. Um, but this, Jesus Christ is Lord, or Jesus is Lord, is the oldest confession of faith. One commentator said, for Paul, this confession is the line of demarcation between believer and non-believer, those who say, Jesus is Lord, and those who refuse. In Romans chapter 10, 9, he says it this way, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So our faith can, in one sense, be boiled down to this, confessing Jesus as Lord. But this brings up some questions. What does it mean to call Jesus Lord? What is this idea of Lord? We're going to look at this in a minute um, in more detail. But I want us to just think about this for just a minute. On one hand, when we use the language Lord, we can think about it in terms of sort of medieval, you know, the medieval world. You had kings, you had uh, princes, you had lords, you had knights. Uh, they were those people who had authority. Uh, they had power. Um, but here in our experience in the United States, uh, we have no lords, no kings. Um, so this idea is a bit abstract to us. In fact, we pride ourselves as Americans of having no king over us. We like to be masters of our own destinies. But for the Philippian church, they understood exactly what this meant. For Paul, for the Christians, whether in Philippi or elsewhere in the Roman Empire, they had no problem conceiving of this idea of lordship. In fact, Paul, of course, is in prison. He's in chains in Rome awaiting trial. He had a real sense of the lordship of Caesar. In this case, uh, likely Nero. And Paul in his letter, declares that there is no authority in heaven or on earth greater than the Lord Jesus. There's none greater. And to confess that Jesus is Lord is to not simply give lip service to his authority, but it is to honor and glorify him with our lives. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to deny that we are masters of our own destinies. And it's to confess along with what the Heidelberg Catechism, which we read a little bit earlier in the service, says when it says that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, 
in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And this afternoon, I want us to consider what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords? I want us to look at his humility, his power, his authority, his glory. And I want us to contemplate what does it mean for us to honor him as Lord, both in our living and in our dying. This is a call to come and to bow down and to worship the Lord of Lords. We're going to look at this in just two parts. The first is simple. Come and die. It's the first call as we consider what it means to make Christ our Lord. It means to come and die. And we'll look at that. And then secondly, we'll look at what it means for us to come and to worship. To come and to worship. So first, come come and die. Paul's aim in this rich theological reflection on the person and work of Jesus is practical. It's, it's a deep, reflective theology, but it is eminently practical. Remember, we can't lose sight of the fact that everything that he said up to this point had to do with how we act towards one another within the body. Consider others more significant than yourselves. Be of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. And so here, in this section, he brings out this high Christology as both the grounds for our actions as a church and the means for our actions. I'll get to, to, to what I mean by that. Uh, our grounds and our means. By grounds, I, I'm, I'm saying that this is the, 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 the foundation or the basis for how we should act. Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. He says here, have this mind, or we might translate, mindset among yourselves. In other words, Paul is saying, very simply, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Verses 6 to 8 are meant to be a paradigm for us, not in their specific details, meaning none of us die for someone's sins. That belongs to the person of Christ. But in the manner that Christ died for sins, that ought to be our manner as well. That ought to be how we act. Be like Jesus. And I'll come back to what that looks like in just a minute, but I just want us to note that this is to be a paradigm for us. Paul is, in one sense, asking this question, what would Jesus do? Now, I, I in tongue-in-cheek, say that because back in the 90s, it was very popular to wear little rubber bands uh, around your wrists that had WWJD on them. Um, I have to confess, I, was, I wasn't into that so much. I kind of rolled my eyes at it a bit. Um, and so you would wear this band, and the idea is that every time you saw WWJD, you would um, think, okay, in whatever situation I'm in, how would Jesus act? Now, I suppose that in my pride, I thought, do you really need to wear a bracelet? Do you really need this little acronym? Like, 
We are called to be like Jesus. And it is a fair question. We're called to be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't imitate him in his saving work. He alone was able to die for sin and rise again and conquer death. But here Paul explicitly uses the example of his self-sacrificial death as a model for us. We are to imitate Christ, to have his mindset, to be like Jesus. Again, not that you would die for anyone's sins, but that you would act like him in humility. We're going to look at this in a moment, but I want to just hammer this idea home. He calls us to be like himself. But in verse 5, Paul also seems to say something else. Not just that this is a paradigm of how we ought to imitate Christ, but he also, I think, says something greater. That he says not only is it the grounds for our, for our obedience, this is how we are to act, here is a picture of Jesus, now walk like him, but it's also the means by which we're able to do that. Notice here it says in verse 5, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours? Which is yours? Belongs to you. We see this same language of in Jesus, right? That we've seen elsewhere. We saw at the beginning of chapter 2, you remember, he said, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from the love of God the Father, if you have any participation in the Spirit, in other words, if you have any union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are empowered by Him and you are connected to Him by His Spirit, that you are indwelt, then do these things. As Lord of our life, He is not only telling us how we to live and showing us how we ought to live, but He empowers us to live, to reflect Him. This ought to be an encouragement to you. What he calls me to do is not something I need to muster in my own power and strength. Uh, you all know what it's like. In fact, we're going to look at it in a little bit how it's the very, this idea of Christ and his self-sacrifice is very anti, very, the very antithetical thing to our natural inclination. Our natural inclination is not to abase ourselves or to, to, in humility, consider others as more significant than ourselves, but our natural inclination is to lift ourselves up, to bring glory to ourselves. And so the good news here is that He empowers us to live. Be encouraged. What He calls us here too, though it seems ridiculously high is not impossible, but possible in Christ. And what he calls and empowers us to do is to come and to die to ourselves. Verses 6 to 11, this whole section is jam-packed with rich and complicated theological truths. Paul, though he doesn't lose sight of the circumstances of the Philippian church, right? He's just been talking about the Philippians. In fact, this whole section kind of is driven out of his call to, to love one another and to serve one another. But it's as if Paul stops for a minute from thinking about the Philippians, and now he's almost entirely focused on Jesus. He moves to this worshipful reflection 
of the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul thought that the best approach to imitating Jesus wasn't so much to focus on our own current circumstances, circumstances, that is, what would Jesus do in this moment, so to speak. Rather, he says, or thinks, let me focus our attention on who Jesus is and what he has already done and what he will ultimately do. All of it is focused in on Jesus. In fact, the Philippians kind of fade into the background as you come to this. So Paul launches into this worshipful reflection. And the thing that stands out in these first three verses is that the Lord of Lords humbled himself for us and died for us. Let's take a look at this. In verse 6, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God. Well, stop right there. Just look at that. Who was in the form of God. The NIV translates it, being in the very nature God. Now, just to be clear, what's not being said here, it isn't saying that he was just in the form of God before, that he didn't, he wasn't really God when he was with God, but he was somehow lesser than God, but he was just kind of in the form of, that. that is not what the text is getting at when it says that he was in the form of God. Rather, it is saying he enjoyed all the aspects of that which was essential to being God. He enjoyed all the the privilege of sitting enthroned on high. He was the eternal Son of God, the one through whom all things were made in heaven and on earth. He was enthroned in heaven with the Father, equal to him in power and glory. He lacked for nothing as Lord of all. But the text says he did not count that equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped. A thing to be clung to. Paul in verse 4, when exhorting the Philippians not to look out for their own interests, but also the interests of other, others, is kind of what Jesus is doing. He's, he's not looking for his own interests. Jesus might have been justified to say, I have every right to cling on to this glory in heaven. I am the eternal Son of God. I am forever. I am eternal. I am all-powerful. I have all authority. I can hold on to this in all of its splendor. I have every right to. He might have been justified, at least in some sense, of considering his own interests. If anyone in the world had the right to consider his own interests, it would be the Lord Jesus. But he doesn't. The NIV picks this idea up in its own translation, a very theological translation. It says, He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I like that. He wasn't looking out for his own advantage. Instead, Jesus made himself nothing. He literally, it says in the text, he emptied himself. Now, again, got to put qualifiers around these things. He did empty himself of his godness, as some would suggest, but rather he emptied himself. Rather than grasping tightly to his glory that he enjoyed in heaven, he took on, he added to himself, humility, flesh, servanthood, dust. 
Paul changes the language a little here. It goes on and he says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness. So instead of form, he says, being in the likeness of man. But again, don't read into this, that he just appeared to be human. We don't want to err in one way saying, no, he was never God. He just in the form of God. Or, oh, he just looked like a man. He wasn't really a man. That's not what the text is saying. The text is clear. He was born. Right? He was born in the likeness of men. He took on flesh. He is fully human, fully God. He added to himself a second nature in, in this sense. He was begotten. He added to himself that veiledness, that, that flesh. So in becoming fully man, he had to let go, in a sense, of the glory that he had in heaven. I, I am struggling with words, you'll note. Some of you are saying, is he theologically right? i got to think about this. And, and I would say, I hope so. But I'm also dipping into a mystery that is far beyond my comprehension. And that I'm trying to explain to you, as well as I can, what Christ, the Son of God, who enjoyed glory in heaven, did by taking on flesh. By becoming the God-man. And I'm, I'm falling short with my words. It is a high mystery. But the thing that I want us to see is that the great contrast between what Christ does and what we often, or in our fallen condition, what we do. Adam in the Garden of Eden and Eve... When tempted by the serpent, thought to themselves, I want to be like God, knowing good and evil. What did they do? They grasped at glory. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. They wanted knowledge and wisdom like God. They didn't, they were not satisfied with how God had made them. And they said, I want something else. I'm going to steal his glory. And in that way, Adam becomes and Eve become glory thieves. And we are in our sinful nature, glory thieves. We long to be recognized. We long to be exalted, to receive praise, to gain power and influence and knowledge, to be judges of all things, to make a name for ourselves. This is part of who we are. And the thing about it is, some of you, some of you might say, that's not me, Rob, actually. I'm not like that. I don't want, I don't, I don't desire greatness and power and money. I'm happy minding my own business, living a quiet life. I don't need all of that. Let me suggest that even being a master of your own universe, however small it is, with no one else to consider or to worry about or just a small group, it's still of the same root. That desire for autonomy, that desire for, for glory, when it isn't tied to the glory of Christ, is... is is glory thieving. 
It's robbing of God. The way the world talks about this very blatantly, brazenly, is it talks about self-love, right? Um, they don't use the term glory, right? They, but they talk about self-love, exalting the self. Just to do a quick search on, on that idea of self-love. Notice here how self-love is offered as a solution to all our longings. Your soul will never be fully nourished by anyone's love but your own. To fall in love with yourself is the first secret to happiness. How you love yourself is how you teach others to love you. I, this one is probably the most sort of insidious because ultimately even other people's love is about you. Like everything revolves around, so I'm going to love myself so that others know how to love me better. It's like... Your greatest responsibility is to love yourself and to know you are enough. What if you simply devoted this year to loving yourself more? I just say, tragic. This one is great. Loving yourself is the greatest revolution. I thought, that's like not a revolution. It's the most basic instinct that we have. This self-love or self-glory is the air that we breathe. And there's great appeal in it. It pretends to offer us a solution to all the guilt and shame that we feel. It, it, it pretends to offer us a solution to the pain of not receiving love in the way that we want from others. But at the end of the day, it's not enough. At the end of the day, we're all too aware of our own failures and shortcomings and our sins. And at the end of the day, we know we are grasping at a love and a glory that will forever elude us. We're grasping at straw. And then when we grasp and we open our hands, rather than glory and love that we so long for, we have nothing but our own self. Adam and Eve in seeking their own glory and becoming glory thieves and wanting to taste that fruit and to know the knowledge of good and evil, what happens to them? Their lives are forfeit. They become gloryless. They're forced out of Eden. Death enters the world, and therefore, not just for Adam and Eve, but all of us become dust to dust. here's the amazing thing. There's one who deserved and had all glory, who deserves all love and affection, and who enjoyed it perfectly. But rather than cling to it, rather than seek it for his own self-interest or self-love or self-glory, what does he do? He lays it aside. Friends, this is, this is hard to comprehend. How God himself would humble himself to become a servant and take upon himself the dust of earth. But not only did he become like us, not only did he become a servant, not only did he wash his disciples' feet, not only did he heal the sick and the lame, not only did he feed the 5,000, but he came and he suffered and he died. And he died for us. 
for thieves like you and me who sought to rob Him of His glory. Thieves who deserve to return to the dust. And yet He laid aside the very thing, glory, for us. The very thing that we wanted to steal, He laid it down. Friend, if you're caught in the trap of seeking self-love and self-glory, I I know you know this, but I'm going to say it. It does not satisfy. You will be left empty-handed. Love and glory are not there when you seek it, when you grab after it for your own self. When you start to build it up, yes, it might last for a minute. You know, anybody who's played a sport knows the joy of victory. But anybody who's played a sport also knows the agony of defeat. And they often go hand in hand. You, one minute you've won, and the next minute you've lost, week in and week out. And at the end of it all, it's a memory. It's what glory is. It's self-glory. It's this fading, unattainable thing. But friends, love and glory are offered to you. Lasting love and glory are offered to you freely in Jesus. He gave Himself for you. And the love and glory in Jesus is realized through the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have to grasp at love. He gave it to you. He gives it to you in Himself and through Himself. And you have that freedom of guilt and shame that that attends so closely to us. He says, forgiven. Believer, Paul says, have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There is an invitation for you to come and to die with Jesus, to be like Him, to die to yourself, to die to self-interest, to die to self-love and self-glory. But it's, it's more than just denial and death of self. It's actually an invitation to reflect the character and beauty of God Himself. When Christ humbled Himself, when He took on flesh, it was not out of character for Him. In fact, his humiliation, his his willingness to humble himself and to suffer and to die and to serve was at the very core of his character. It was essential to him. Humility, love, sacrifice, mercy, grace, patience. These are essential characteristics of the Godhead that were not diminished in his humiliation, but rather accentuated, or, or better yet, perfectly revealed in His humiliation and death. In other words, we see Christ's glory more clearly than ever in the cross. And you have an opportunity to reflect that character. Wow! What an opportunity. When you think about dying to yourself, and loving another, it can feel like loss. 
And in a sense, there is a loss to it, right? <laughs> you give up something. But there is something much greater gained. There is glory in our self-sacrifice, but it's not a glory that shines from us, but a glory that shines through us from the Lord Jesus. It is a reflected glory that comes from God as we reflect His character in this world. Friends, believers, you have an opportunity to come and die to yourself. And by dying to yourself, there is glory in Jesus. Well, what an amazing thing. And this, this brings me to my final point in conclusion, my second point, which is a call to come into worship. In our text, there's a drastic shift, right? Jesus, we see in his humiliation, he doesn't consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but takes on the form of a servant, takes on our likeness, comes and he suffers and he dies and he's crucified. Let me, let me tell you, the Philippian church would not be wearing crosses around their necks. There was nothing more abhorrent in the Roman world than the cross. This was as bad as you can possibly imagine, but this depth of humiliation that Christ goes to quickly shifts. Notice here in the text, it says, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's like you can't come up with a greater uh, chasm of difference from humiliation to exaltation. The dra drastic shift. Now, Paul does not elaborate on the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. In fact, he goes right to the throne room, if you will. Therefore God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And then it quickly jumps from there to his coming again. We, uh, I, I was going to say this a little later, but I'll say it now because it kind of fits. Is in Throughout this section of Philippians, from chapter, in chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, we begin in the, the pre-existence, if you will, the, the, the eternal existence past of God. It says, who was in the form of God? Meaning, he always was. He existed. He is God himself. And then you move to his humiliation, his incarnation, that present living of life here on earth. And then by the end of this all, you get to his final coming again and his exaltation. It's the, the whole story of redemption sort of painted for us right here in Scripture. Christ, highly exalted. Now, here it says that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Again, this is in contrast to us. We seek a name for ourselves, and here the Lord of glory humbled himself and was given a name. Now, there's some question, is this referred to his name Jesus, right? So Jesus, of course, means Savior. Uh, it comes from the words to save. So is the Apostle Paul saying the name that's bestowed on him is Jesus? Yes and no. I think 
I think the text here is saying he's given the name, the title that is above every name, Lord. And, I, and I, the reason I think this is from where I think Paul takes the language that we see here in this latter part of, uh, in verses 9 to 11, from Isaiah chapter 45. In Isaiah chapter 45, uh, it is a declaration of God and his saving uh, power. And there's this amazing section where it begins, where God speaks. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And then it goes on and it says, by myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And this is the word, to me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. And it goes on and says, Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, Our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be, and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified, read saved, and shall glory. Commentators think this is where Paul's drawing this language. He's taking this idea of the Lord as the Savior, the Lord of the Old Testament. So this language of Lord, we've talked a little bit about, would have been understandable to the people in Philippi because they would have understood that the, the, the emperor would have been called Lord. He would have said Lord Caesar or something to that effect. Uh, or Caesar is Lord or Lord of all. So they would have understood it in that sense. But there's actually an even more stupendous sense that I think the Apostle Paul is drawing on. Not just from the culture saying, Christ is Lord, but Christ is Yahweh. Christ is the covenant Lord. Christ is one with God. He's saying, the God that you read about in Isaiah chapter 45, the one who saves, the one who calls all peoples to himself and will call, cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess, that Lord is Jesus. He's the one who there is none like. There is no other God. Now, as we think about this glorious exaltation of Jesus, I want us to consider what Paul is calling us to. Remember, the whole point of this was to say how you would treat other people in the church, right? That's an amazing thing. All this high theology of who Jesus is comes to this very practical point. How, how do you love one another? And I think one of the things, maybe you're not like this, but I know that I am in, in the Christian life, that we can often think of the Christian life as, okay, I need to die to self. I need to kill my sinful desire. I need to be humble. The Christian life is all about suffering and service. Maybe that's how you view the Christian life, and you kind of you kind of mope your way through to the Christian life, sort of dour, like Presbyterians. And you know, I joke about that, but I, I you know, in in Scotland, that had become sort of a marker of being Presbyterian seriousness. 
But we can start to think that the Christian life is all about that, that that's it. It's all about our suffering and service. And in some way, he's right. This is what the Apostle Paul is calling us to. Suffering and service, dying to self, loving one another. But here, I think we get a bigger picture, a grander picture. We get a picture of what it is to be united to the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who rules and reigns on high. In other words, there is glory in salvation in Jesus. It's not just suffering and death, but it is for us as well exaltation. And here's the thing. We in Christ are raised up. We're raised up a new life by the Spirit, right? You have new life. You're forgiven. You will be raised up. Your body will be raised up at the last day. Even in before that day, if you go to be with the Lord, you will be with the Lord. You will be raised up spiritually. In the intermediate state, there was this weird waiting period, if you will, before your body is raised up. But I don't want us to miss this. That Paul's saying, yes, you're called to suffer. You're called to die to self. You're called to love one another. But you are also partakers of glory. The difference is, it's not your glory. It's not your glory. We are sharers in the life and exaltation of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, and our hope is in Him. And He's given that name that is above every name, the Lord of hosts. In other words, it's all about Jesus. As we look at this last few sex, few verses here, it says, Therefore God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that's above every name. Why? There's a purpose statement. So that as the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's all about Jesus. I think sometimes we think of this as a negative. I'm diminished. I become nothing, and Christ becomes all. How is this a good thing? Isn't, is it, you're, you're talking about glory, Rob, but all you're talking about is Jesus' glory. And what I would say to that is, yes. But in that glory, you enjoy life. You enjoy Christ. Christ in you, transforming you, becoming like Him in all His ways. You start to be transformed so that... at the coming of Jesus, you will see His face and be like Him. No more sin. No more sorrow. Having the clothes of Jesus on you, but also the Spirit of Christ in you, transformed. So yeah, it is all about Jesus. And yeah, you will pay homage to Him. You will bow to Him and acknowledge that He is Lord. But this is the most wonderful truth that we have. Because the alternative is terrifying. What if it was about you? What if it was all about you? 
Let's reflect on that for just a minute. All your brokenness, all your sin, magnified to its greatest extent. But here it's about Jesus. It's about the King who rules in your heart and who overrules your sin, who transforms you. And so He calls you to come and to worship, to bow your knee before the living God, recognizing Him as the Savior. And so as we bow our knee and as we confess with our tongue that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, now we enjoy life in its fullest. We enjoy glory in its fullest. We enjoy Christ. This is the most hopeful thing that I have, at least for my life, because if it's all about me, it's a disaster. Makes me think of John Piper. He's all about joy and enjoying the Lord. It's not a dour thing. It's a wonderful thing. Because we have a Lord who willingly suffered, who willingly died. A Lord full of mercy and grace. One who is changing us and transforming us from one degree of glory to another and who is coming again. But there's also a warning in this passage. I don't want you to miss it. Jesus, it says here, Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess or and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that is a guarantee. There is none who will not bow the knee. There is no one who will not worship in a sense or be used for the glory of God in a sense. That isn't to say that all will willingly bow the knee. That isn't to say that there is no judgment. But it is to say that in judgment, God will raise the dead. He will bring all peoples before Him, and He will judge them, and they will acknowledge Him as Lord to their own judgment. Friend, if you're here today and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus and to find your glory in Him, it's a warning. You will eventually, and it'll be a terrifying day when He comes again in all His power and authority. And so the call is for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to believe in your heart that He saves, that He saves. All right, let's close.